though I would not discourage you from turning there, you're certainly welcome to do it, I do encourage you to hear what God has to say to you right now in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, that I too may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Would you join me again at God's throne as we ask for His blessing now to understand what that passage is all about. Oh Father, would You so work in each one of us by Your dear Holy Spirit that our deepest desire, our controlling motive in our life the thing we want more than we want anything else. Would You so work in us by Your Spirit that that deep, deep desire of our lives would be to know Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, part one of today's message is going to be to delve into those glorious verses. And part two is going to be, by way of application, how we as a church, having been birthed in prayer among your elders for a long, long time, might be engaged not only in the pursuit of Christ here together, but also the spreading of His lasting joy to the ends of the earth. And so the first part will be Philippians 3, and the second part will be uh, what we call ascending vision. So when we get to that second part, I've already asked some people to pass out to you uh, a handout that will guide that part of the discussion, and we'll have some slides that will correspond to that handout. But first... As we look into Philippians 3, verses 7-12, through 12, we're doing so today on, as we do every January now, uh, Jim texted me this morning, uh, next month, Lord willing, February, will be Grace Church's 13th 
birthday. So for those who don't know, we've spent the previous two days as a church family, the ladies on Friday night, the brothers on uh, Saturday, yesterday morning, and then everybody uh, here last night. We spent the whole weekend reflecting on God's kindness. We do that every year uh, as an encouragement weekend, and then we cap that off on Sunday morning of our encouragement weekend, uh, just trying to recast the main point. The vision, if you will, for why God has put us on earth, why He has saved those of us who are in Christ, and why He has clustered us together in a local church. So today is a vision sermon. It's really the heart of the heart of the heart of it all. And uh, the illustration that comes to my mind about a vision sermon, as Jim was saying to me in a text message this morning, this is the 14th time at least we've done this because it started... Uh, the year before the church existed as we were in some simple Bible studies together on Sunday evening. The reason we've done this is like the reason I went to the eye doctor this week. I don't know how many of you have had the joy of going to the optometrist, but uh, that was my first experience. I'm 42, never been to the eye doctor in my life, and thankfully I got a good report. Uh, so I guess that's, that's one plus. But uh, if you've ever had your eyes dilated, it's not the most pleasant experience uh, on earth. And they do some pressure tests and other stuff like that and see how much pressure is behind your eyeballs and take some pictures and make you look at bright lights. And you have to read the little chart of all the letters. And sometimes for some of us, the smaller the letters, the more fuzzy they become. But why is it important to have your vision checked? Because... Most often, we don't see how imperceptibly out of focus stuff gets. Now, even though I got a good report, I couldn't read the smallest of the smallest of the small letters on that chart. And today, I wonder, what is in focus for you when it comes to the ultimate things of life? What's most central in your vision and most clear and crisp in terms of your ultimate desires. Why do you live? What is your aim? What is your goal in life? Well, I believe Philippians 3 hands to us from God's own heart what that goal ought to be. In these verses, verses 7-11 through 11 really, I added 12, which begins the next paragraph. I did so on purpose. Uh, in these verses, Paul summarizes his religious autobiography. And he caps it off by telling us in the verses I read to you, what is in Christ his ultimate aim. In the first six verses of the chapter, which I didn't read, Paul is talking about his background but it's his background without Christ. He was a very religiously devoted man. He was prominent among the religious elite of his day. Dennis Johnson in his commentary on this passage says that in verses 1-11, through Paul rehearses his own experience as an example of God's free grace in Christ. He goes on to say he is safeguarding his friends in Philippi from plausible spiritual poison spreading among the churches that he had planted among the Gentiles. What is the poison that might spread? Well, to quote Johnson again, he says it's this. A subtle shift 
in one's trust from Jesus to oneself. It would be to fall prey to what Paul calls in another letter the Judaizer's message. Basically, what was happening in and around Philippi in the time that Paul wrote this letter was that there were people who were coming into the church who were of Jewish background and they were saying a lot of the same things Paul was saying, but they were saying to the people who were not Jews, that is, Gentiles, that is, all of us, the Judaizers were saying to the Gentiles, yes, 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 you must trust Jesus, but your trust in Jesus must be supplemented by circumcision, and by rigorous commandment keeping in order for you Gentiles to find full assurance of your standing with God as His people under His favor forever. Basically this, if you want to be saved, so said the Judaizers, trust Jesus. Doesn't that sound good? But here's the problem. There wasn't a period at the end of those two words. It was a comma. Trust Jesus plus your good works. As we've said around here many, 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 many times, you cannot fit through the narrow door of salvation holding on to all of your good works. Anyone who's ever going to be saved is only going to be saved by Christ alone. So this is what Paul is comparing and contrasting verses 5 and 6, I didn't read, in verses 7 through 9, which I did. In verses 5 and 6, Paul lists out his religious pedigree. His autobiography. We could summarize it by saying Paul gives to us his credentials for why he thought God would like him. In verses 7 through 9, he lists Christ's credentials as his only hope post-true conversion for why he knows God has accepted him. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about what he has done. In verses 7-9, through he talks about what God has done. Verse 7 begins with, but whatever things were gained to me. Have you ever come to the place where you thought about all the religious good that you've accumulated? or that has been entrusted to you. It's not uncommon in our land for people to describe their religious experience like this. I've been going to church since before I was born. My mom was bringing me to church while I was in the womb. It's not uncommon for us to talk about the good spiritual experience that God has allowed us to have in our day in our land. Paul's was, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. He's saying he was a very good church boy. And as he rehearses in those two verses, 5 and 6, his own experience, he's rehearsing it apart from the grace that can be found in Christ. And he's telling this dear church, the church at Philippi, beware of this poison. Have you ever come to the place in your life not where you've detested the bad stuff you've done, but where you've trembled under an awareness 
that all the good stuff you've done has been an impediment between you and God. You see, self-righteousness is, I believe, the most insidious sin and it is the most difficult to detect. We can all make a list right now of the bad things we shouldn't do because they displease God. But would it be as easy for you to make a list of the good things that you should do, but that you should not trust because that trust would separate you from God? Self-righteousness is deep and it's in every last one of us. And you can't be saved if you only turn from the bad that you've done. You must also flee from every good thing you've done. To put it in God's words, have you ever tasted 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21? God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we get the righteousness that God requires? God's answer repeatedly and in Paul's own experience as he's trying to love these Philippians is to tell them you must have a righteousness that comes from outside of yourself, not from within. So the first point that I want us to look at in these passages, verses 7-9, to is what Paul means by the phrase at the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ. The second point I want us to look at is in verses 10 and 11. It starts in verse 10, that I may know Christ. And the third point I want us to look at is in verse 12, that I may lay hold of Christ. That I may gain Christ. That phrase is found at the end of verse 8. That I may know Christ. It's found in verse 10. And that I may lay hold of Him. Verse 12. Well, first, that I may gain Christ. Look at verse 7 again. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, in verse 9, he starts speaking about an alien righteousness. I'm not talking about sci-fi television. I'm talking about a righteousness that comes from outside of Him, not from inside of Him. Listen carefully to verse 9. When he says at the end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ and, verse 9, may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Well, three considerations under this point that I may gain Christ. The first is the death of spiritual pride. The death of spiritual pride. Has spiritual pride been put to death in you? Verses 7 and 8. When this man who wrote this inspired letter first met the risen Jesus, he was then known as Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul realized that every contribution he had ever sought to make toward his standing with God only worsened his damnable predicament when he finally encountered the risen Jesus. Let me give you an illustration and then tell you Paul's story. Could you imagine that if on your last or your next payday, your teller or helper at the bank told you that all the money that you had been bringing to deposit each time you got a little widow's mite and put it into your account, that every deposit you had ever made in your account actually increased the debt that you owed. We wouldn't want to bank there anymore, would we? If every credit you contributed increased the debt that you owed, you wouldn't use the bank. (laughs) But when Paul finally met the risen Jesus, then Saul of Tarsus, he instantaneously realized that every contribution he had ever tried to make, including where he was headed when he met Jesus, every contribution he had ever tried to make toward God, having favor toward Him, only worsened his damnable damnable predicament. Have you ever experienced that truth in the presence of Christ for yourself? You know the story in Acts chapter 9 when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus and he was on his way to persecute the Christians and to stamp out the name of Christ in the known world to, as Luke says in Acts, to persecute the way, capital W. He hated Jesus and anybody who had anything to do with Him until, of course, he himself himself met Jesus. And what he's talking about in Philippians 3, 7-8 is whatever was gained to me, all that 5 and 6, verse 5 and 6 stuff, all that religious pedigree, all that spiritual biography, that's the good stuff. That's not the bad stuff. Whatever was gained to me, that is what I consider as loss for the sake of Christ. So the first thing is the death of his spiritual pride. The second thing in verse 9 is the abhorrence of self-righteousness. The abhorrence of his self-righteousness. Do you see in verse 9, when he speaks about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. When he finally met the righteous Redeemer, he no longer rested in his own righteousness. You cannot trust Jesus and anything other than Jesus and truly trust Jesus. So Paul would say it this way in verse 8, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may have Christ. Do you see what he's saying? I'm letting go of all of this. In fact, I consider it rubbish. Many of you have been exposed to the background of the word that's translated rubbish in the New American Standard. It's the Greek word skubala. The lexical range for that word rubbish is refuse, the excrement of animals, dregs, things that are detestable, 
He's literally talking about feces. Anything that I could have trusted outside of Christ to make me righteous, I now consider it refuse. How do you come to the place where the thing you thought would commend you to God is now putrid in your nostrils? Nauseating. How do you get to the point where the scales, if you will, are so lifted from your eyes that you see that the thing that you thought was shiny and dazzling and attractive is now stomach-churning? The only answer is you see what Paul calls surpassing value. You have to see something that replaces the former thing with something greater. If somebody tells you all day long your goodness won't make you right with God, it won't make you stop trusting your goodness. You have to see something, or better, someone who surpasses what you once thought would accumulate for you His favor. Paul, and I believe a play on words, calls it the suffering of the loss of all things, to consider all those things rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Some of you have experienced this. Not only the death of your spiritual pride, but the abhorrence of your former so-called righteousness. Do you see what Paul is comparing and contrasting and, and how he is comparing and contrasting? He's comparing his own righteousness with Christ's righteousness. That's what he's comparing. But how he compares them. Scubala, refuse, feces, versus incalculable worth. We're not talking about equal comparisons. We're talking about categorical differences between what will damn you And who will save you? The third thing I want you to see about this first comment under gaining Christ is in verse 9, verse 7 through 9, the all surpassing allure of Christ. So the death of his spiritual pride, the abhorrence of his own righteousness outside of Christ, but then he drills into the allure of Christ. How his soul is now alive and awakened to the attraction to Jesus. This is the inevitable effect upon a soul that has fled to Jesus by faith. What is the inevitable effect? An appetite for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is why Grace Church exists. To have our souls satisfied in Christ to the glory of God forever. Do you have an appetite for Jesus? He says in verse 7, for the sake of Christ. He says in verse 8, that I may gain Christ. Do you see that it's a person now? Not His former work. 
It is the person of Jesus and what He has accomplished at Calvary to give His own righteousness to anyone who will trust Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises. Dennis Johnson is again worth quoting. Listen to this. Notice that the treasure for which Paul has gladly relinquished all previous claims to fame is not merely forgiveness. That's not the treasure that he talks about in this verse. Nor a justified status before God in view of the coming judgment. The treasure, Johnson says, worth more than everything to Paul is Christ Himself. To gain Him. To be found in Him. To know Him. That's the language Paul uses. And Johnson continues, in Christ, Paul has received the robe of righteousness that his best efforts could have never pieced together. This is so vital, friends. It's literally the difference between where we will spend eternity. We must reckon carefully with the heart of what Paul is saying in this passage. And so I will lean on Johnson one more time to finish the thought he just said. For Paul, Christ not merely was not merely a dispenser of saving benefits. Jesus will give you forgiveness. Jesus will give you acceptance. He will make you right with God. He will give you life-transforming power. He will give you a future resurrection. For Paul, Jesus was not just a dispenser like a vending machine or a slot machine that gives you things that you need from God. Johnson concludes, Christ is the second person of the triune God for whose fellowship we were designed and in whose friendship we find our highest joy. And Paul definitely wants salvation from Jesus. Let me be clear. He absolutely wants forgiveness from Jesus. He wants the righteousness that Jesus alone can give him. Period. I'm not denying that. But I am saying clearly that on the basis of this passage, those are not the main things that Paul wants. He wants Jesus. Him. We've said so many times around here, Worth repeating again now, Jesus saves us all by Himself and He saves us all for Himself that I may gain Christ. The second consideration, verses 10 and 11, that I may know Christ. That I may know Him. That's the way verse 10 begins. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. It's clearly a progression there. Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, Paul has just told us very clearly in verse 9 that the only way to attain the righteousness from God that is found in Christ is only on the basis of faith. So what would it look like, faith is trust, what would it look like if I trust Jesus savingly? What would my inner man sound like? What would the appetite of my soul yearn for? How can I know if Jesus is my portion? If I have rested in Him alone for the forgiveness of my sins? How can I know if I have, verse 9, faith? What is faith? 
Faith, as we've described it here many times, there's plenty of good ways to describe what biblical faith is, but we say often faith is the empty-handed receiving of all that God is for you in Christ. It's not giving God something. Here's my faith. Faith is saying to God, principally, I don't have anything. In fact, all the things that I would have tried to commend myself to you with are the very reasons that you should not save me. So I'm coming to you with nothing. Faith is the empty-handed, nothing, receiving, that is grasping, of all that God is for you in Christ. Faith doesn't say, I will take, let's see, combo number one. No, it's not parceling out for you God's blessings. That's not faith. Faith is saying, I will take all that comes with receiving the fullness of Christ. I want all of Him. You can't segment Jesus. So what would it sound like is our question number two, if you gain Christ. Point number two is, you'll have an appetite to know Him. The three aspects that Paul lists in verse 10 are of his experiential desire to know Jesus. And he wants to know Jesus as fully as Jesus can be known. So I put that to you in a question. Do you want to know Jesus so? The first way that Paul says he wants to know Christ in verse 10 as a saving recipient of the righteousness of Jesus is the one that would animate any Christ follower. That is, A, the power of His resurrection. This power is available to all believers. The risen Christ, now reigning in glory, is pleased to dispense His own resurrection power into the lives of all of His people according to our need as we trust Him. ESV Study Bible says, concerning Christ's resurrection power. This is the power that Christ exerts now from the right hand of God. The risen Redeemer gives His fullness to His people. So what would it look like to be filled with resurrection power? With the power that raised Jesus from the dead, what would that show up like in my life? Would I be performing a bunch of miracles or doing all kinds of supernatural feats? How would I know resurrection power is coursing through my life? Well, the same human author who wrote this sentence also wrote another sentence that helps us to understand that, and many of them, many sentences. But one sentence that's so similar, he wrote to the church at Colossae, and in Colossians chapter 1, he, he tells them how he's praying for them. And among other things, he prays this, that you, church at Colossae, will be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. That's a lot of power. What would it look like if God answered Paul's prayer? He tells them in the next sentence, so that you will be steadfast and patient. Do you realize that that's what it looks like in large part for the power of the risen Jesus to be at work in your life? That you're just steadfast. You're a faithful plotter. You keep seeking Jesus. You keep trusting 
Jesus. You keep walking with Jesus. That's resurrection power in your life. You didn't do that. The Holy Spirit does that in the people who trust Jesus. That's the risen Jesus dispensing into your life His own resurrection power. Steadfastness. And the second thing Paul said to the Colossians is patience. You're waiting on God. You're actively pursuing Him to do what He alone can do. And you're not impulsively running ahead of Him or trying to fix things in your own power. You're patient. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection power of Christ at work in believers is at work in believers to the degree that the Spirit of Christ is transforming our character into the image of Christ. That's the miracle. The people who trust Jesus want to know the fullness of Jesus in our lives. Do you want to know Jesus so much that His life permeates your life? That's what Paul's talking about. There's no more blessed life than that. The Christ-saturated life. The second thing he wanted to know, flowing out of his saving relationship with Jesus and having the righteousness of Christ as his own by faith, he wanted to know not only the resurrection power of Jesus, but is this a strange, strange phrase? Verse 10, I want to know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings. To experience Jesus in the midst of loss and pain is a privileged portion that applies only to the children of God. We heard so many testimonies this weekend. I heard several in the group setting and I heard several more in just interpersonal conversations yesterday morning in that back room and last night in that same room and in the hallway. So many testimonies just over the course of the last 12 or 13 months where Jesus in His sweet company has showed up to fellowship with His suffering people. And Paul is saying, I want to know Jesus in the fellowship of His sufferings. Our sister Melissa read last night from Samuel Rutherford and I already had in my own notes to read the exact same portion and it's well worth reading a few dozen times, but hear it again. This is the portion of all of God's people who have walked through suffering with Jesus. This is what Samuel Rutherford was referring to when he said, whether God come to His children with a rod, with a crown, if He come Himself with it, it is well. Welcome, welcome Jesus. What way soever He comes. If we can get a sight of Him and sure I am, Rutherford said, it is better to be sick providing that Christ come to the bedside and draw by the curtains and say, courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, and never be visited of God. Paul wanted to know Jesus in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And to this same church, the church at Philippi, Paul wrote in chapter 1, for to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, that sounds like Philippians 3.9, but also to suffer for His sake. That sounds like Philippians 3.10. It's a gift. He gives you the gift of suffering according to His own wise design so that you can know more of the fullness of Jesus. 
It doesn't mean that God's children are to embrace a martyr complex, to go look for suffering and try to bring it upon our lives. God knows how to distribute that at the right time in the right way. We do, though, live in a fallen world. Suffering is absolutely inevitable. And we know that because our dear Savior Himself suffered in His active obedience, 33 and a half years, in His passive obedience at the cross of Calvary, when He let men do unspeakable things to Him physically, we know that because our dear Savior suffered, because He experienced sorrows and loss on earth, we know not only is our suffering not in vain because He went through it, but He Himself knows how to do Hebrews 2.18 and come to our aid when we're tempted to give up, from, give up on God. He actually sweetens the suffering. As was quoted last night, the sufferings of this present age are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. How is that the case? Because Christ Himself gets down into the valley with His people. And He teaches us something of His sweet fullness that we could not have learned any other way. And Paul said, I want to know Him like that. I want to know Him in His resurrection power. I want to know Him in the fellowship of His sufferings. And third, he says in verse 10, being conformed to His death. This is a sober word. It really tests the mettle of every last one of us. Do we want to know Jesus fully? Like the apostles, the eleven faithful, who all joined the Lord Jesus in giving their lives, for His cause. We have to look at Scripture and tremble, don't we? And we all have to ask this question. Have we calculated the cost? Jesus talked about the foolish man who starts to build a house only to find out halfway through the construction project that he never had enough funds to begin with to complete the project, so he has a half-built house that's just sitting out there for everybody to look at year after year. And how foolish that is. And so Jesus wants us all to understand right on the front end that giving our life to Him means giving our life to Him. That we sign away everything. Every hope, every dream, every relationship, every possession. We put no edges on the parameters of where He can send us, when He can send us, how He wants to use us, where He wants to use us, for what purpose He wants to use us. We give Him our life. And when we do, like the apostles who walked with our Lord, and like so many others in Scripture and in church history, we too have to reckon with the question, are we ready and are we willing to follow Him to the grave? I mean, it's easy to say yes today. Right here, right now. But when push comes to shove, as Paul wrote earlier in this very same letter, all of Christ's people. I don't know another way to say it other than the normal Christian life. All of Christ's people have tasted the blessedness of His fullness in such a way that causes our souls to humbly exclaim, not prideful, not boastful, not championing our audacious faith. No, not that. But because the 
the desire to know Christ is so great. The deepest part of our saved humanity says, for to me to live is Christ. And to die, what would that be like? How can it be better? It must mean that the psalmist knew what he was talking about. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is better than my life. Better. That's the only way you can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you get if in Christ you die? You get Christ. He's better. And so the the Christian can say, not just the eminent Apostle Paul, we can say, we are ready, and by God's grace, we are willing to follow Him to the grave. This same author, the Apostle Paul, has some other stuff to say to us about this so many times. And let me just give you one little sampling. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We are being put to death all day long in all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our death is no longer an ominous threat hanging over our finite head. Rather, in a way that's hard to explain, but it's true for every Christian, like the Trinity we talked about earlier. You can't explain it, and every Christian believes it. Every Christian just embraces That death is our welcome friend. In God's providential timing and in His purposed way, however, He is pleased to call us home. All death is going to do for us is give to us our best friend. Usher us into the blessed presence of our King for endless eternities. For centuries, our brothers and sisters have been talking like this. The Heidelberg Catechism expresses the heart of all of God's children and I underline all of God's children. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That's Christianity. And that's what Paul's talking about that I may gain Christ. You can only have Him if you trust Him by faith alone. And He will give to you all His righteousness, which is everything God requires for you to be in His presence forever. And if you gain Christ, you will want to know Christ. And if you want to know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, you get verse 11 you get to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The constraining ambition of Paul's life was to be fully conformed to the image of Christ. As Robert Murray McShane said, I want to be as holy as a saved sinner can be. Is that your desire? 
to be as much like Christ on this side of eternity as is possible for saved sinners. That was Paul's pursuit. He wanted to be raised from the dead, verse 11, because he knew that he would then be fully glorified like his Lord. Although he had accomplished so much prior to the time of writing Philippians, he was not content with his previous attainments. He wasn't trying to make his good works outweigh his bad works so that he could get into heaven when he died. In fact, he considered all his previous attainments to be white noise in a forward pursuit of Christ's fullness. He knew that there was more territory in him for God to conquer. There were more aspects of his character to be conformed into Christ's image. When we think about that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, my friend Charles Simeon helped me so much. Of the apostles' attainments, none can doubt. Yet, did he desire to know Christ more and the power of His resurrection as much as if he had lived an entire stranger to piety even to that very hour? Simeon's basically saying all the stuff God did in Paul after his salvation was for Paul zero because his desire to know Christ more. He's basically saying something like this. There is such an ocean of fullness in Jesus that if I'm satisfied with a little thimble dip that I've already tasted, it begs the question of if I even know Him. So Paul would say, thank you God, you are gracious, let's go. Simeon continues. And so will every true Christian. Just like one in a foot race. Forget all the ground that he has previously passed and be intent only on that which is before him. Nor will he ever be content until he is as holy as God Himself is holy. And is as perfect as the Father which is in heaven is perfect. Then only will the Christ follower be fully satisfied. I have to examine myself when I see faithful interpretations of passages like that. And then, by the grace of God, under the Word of God, with the people of God, we can say, Lord, do that in us. That we may know the power of His resurrection. Until that is fully accomplished in us, don't take our sights off Christ. Conform us into His image. Psalm 17.15 As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That's when I rise from the dead. Well, nobody has fully attained this, obtained this yet. So verse 12, Paul says very clearly, nor has he. He hasn't fully attained it. He has not become perfect, but he presses on so that he may lay hold of Christ. And he actually says, that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He's, he's saying in verse 12, God's not finished with me. He's still doing work in me. Therefore, I'm pressing on. And here's what I'm pressing on for. Whatever reason He laid hold of me, all that great love that must be deep in His heart beyond my ability to comprehend higher and deeper and wider and broader, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, I want to know Him that way. That I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Him. My dear brothers and sisters, 
until we love Him as He loves us. Until we know Him as He knows us. Until we delight in God as fully as our Redeemer delights in God Himself, let us press on to know Him. For the final few moments of this message, I'm going to invite you to pray with the pastors of this church about how that work may happen in us, but also God may equip us to send others to do the same. Let's pray together and I'm going to have a little thing distributed for you that I'll briefly describe and then we'll conclude. Father in Heaven, we ask that You would cause us to be Philippians 3, 7-11 through people. The kind of people who even in verse 12 press on for more deep, full knowledge of Jesus. That You would cause us to cast off anything that we're holding on to outside of Christ and by faith to trust Him and Him alone for the righteousness that You require that He purchased for us in His own death, won for us in His own victorious resurrection, and now dispenses to us from His heavenly throne by the Spirit until He comes again to rescue us forever. Oh God, cause us to know Jesus. We ask this for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.